1: The Army getting set to deploy in British Columbia, at least for air support, through uh, the Canadian Air Force. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau promising the federal government will be there for B.C. Here's what Trudeau had to say on how Ottawa is supporting the province. We're
2: ensuring that we're doing absolutely everything we can to support the people in British Columbia who are uh, hit with this terrible, terrible disaster. I can confirm there are hundreds of Canadian Armed Forces members uh, currently headed to British Columbia to help with everything from supplies to evacuation to whatever is needed. There are thousands more on standby. We will continue uh, to work closely with the province, with Indigenous leaders, with community leaders to make sure that we're doing Everything we can uh, to support the people of British Columbia through this incredibly difficult time.
1: Our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau there with the armed forces being deployed. There may be more deployments of uh, federal military aid in British Columbia here in the days ahead. We'll cover that for you on the show today. Uh, we've got Transportation Minister Rob Fleming on the show today. Get the latest on those highway closures. We'll also focus again on the plight faced by farmers in the Fraser Valley, especially in those drought-stricken areas that have been evacuated in Abbotsford. And yesterday, we just had some heartbreaking interviews of farmers, spoke to a dairy farmer, a chicken farmer in that region who have been forced to uh, leave their farms in many cases and leave their animals behind. And we heard yesterday about how some of these chicken farms have been flooded out, animals literally drowning on some of these farms. And we'll talk about that today on the show as well. We've got some great guests coming up on that, including uh, the head of the B.C. Agriculture Council. We'll get the latest on that. The province's agriculture minister yesterday, Lana Popham, Uh, talking about the problems on these uh, flooded out farms and the loss of animal life. Have a listen to this.
3: We have thousands of animals that have perished. We have uh, many, many more that are in difficult situations and uh, we're seeing um, an animal welfare issue develop. Uh, They need attention and so with my colleagues, we're developing uh, routes so that veterinarians can access farms um, and get to the animals as soon as possible. There will have to be euthanizations that happen, um, but there are also animals who have survived that are going to be in critical need for food in the next 24 hours. Okay,
1: B.C. Agriculture Minister Lana Popham speaking yesterday, and we've got some great guests coming up on that later on the show. So we've got all that and lots more, but first we focus on the flight out of hope. So many people were trapped there by those landslides limited route out now on highway 7 has been reopened for limited traffic allowing weary travelers to finally finally get out of there and make their way home let's talk to one of them now kelly Tyndall. kelly was stuck in hope since sunday night but i believe she's home now hi kelly
4: hi
1: mike hi it's I'm nice home. to talk to you nice to talk to you again kelly were you able to get home
4: yes she got oh, home good. very late last night yeah
1: Okay, so let's talk a little bit about your saga here. So how did you get stuck in Hope originally there?
4: We uh, were coming back from Salmon Arm, have a place there, and um, just got word that, you know, the Highway 5 had closed, so we planned on going on the 1, and then we heard the 1 had closed. So then we were rerouted through on the 3, which was open still at that point, and made it into Hope, which had no power tried to get going on the seven to get home and um, then there was a landslide i guess right at ruby creek which we just missed and so we turned around and booted it back to hope and we're stranded there for a few days
1: yeah you were there since how many days were you stuck in hope there
4: uh we got there sunday night so three nights and kind of four days yeah oh
1: man that is a long haul and were you living out of your vehicle that whole time or did you find somewhere to stay
4: we were really lucky. We were in the car for two nights, and then through the through the good part of social media, we wound up connecting with a friend of a friend who had a place, and she put us up for some much-needed rest on that third night, because we were going a little crazy.
1: Oh, thank goodness. Yeah, I bet you were. So you finally got home yesterday. So I guess, what did you, were you able to drive home on that Highway 7?
4: Yeah, we were. Yeah. It was um, really slow going, and it was dark, so we couldn't really see the whole devastation, but you could definitely tell that there was... We were driving through what, what had been covered by rocks and mud and trees. and ugh. Yeah,
1: it was oh. Oh, it was man. crazy. Yeah, I guess it was slow going?
4: Very slow going, yeah. yeah. Um, moved along, and then as soon as we got just outside of a- Agassiz, there's that Mount Woodside, big, steep, windy hill, and they were escorting people through that, so it was a very, very slow
1: move through there. How, lo- how long did it take you in total to finally get home?
4: <laughs> no, I'm... So sorry, I didn't even. I decided not don't to work, know. But I, I think it was about eight, seven or eight hours. I
1: think the you know the hours and the days must be all just blending into each other for you at this point.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like a giant blur.
1: It is. Yeah. How does it feel to be home finally? Oh my god, so good. <laughs> I bet it does. <laughs> all right, Kelly. Well, at least you've got a story to tell. Yeah. Um, thanks so much
4: for checking in. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. I'm glad you got home, Kelly Tyndall. There, thank you, Kelly. She was stuck in hopes in Sunday night. Uh, but she finally got home as a very slow going there with the limited traffic allowed on Highway 7. Great coverage coming up on the uh, the floods and disasters that have paralyzed so many parts of the province, including the transportation minister later on the show. We'll give you the latest on the plan to reopen some of these shutdown highways and how long it's going to take to repair them. A lot of uh, heavy, heavy damage on these key routes in British Columbia. You know, when you take a look at the infrastructure of our province and how it was quickly overwhelmed in many parts uh, because of this flooding and landslide activity, a lot of discussion in the days ahead now about how do we adapt to these extreme weather events and climate change? How can we mitigate uh, the effects of this? How can we build better as we get back here? Because these events are likely to happen again in the future. Let's discuss that now with my guest, Professor Jason Thistlethwaite from the University of Waterloo in the School of Environment, Enterprise and Development there. And I'm very pleased to welcome him. Jason, thanks a lot for coming on today.
0: Thanks for the opportunity.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. Like, when you take a look at, from from your vantage point there, of what we're going through here in, in British Columbia, we see highways that were supposed to be modern, indestructible highways in many regards. It just snapped into pieces here. The Coquihalla is lying in pieces right now, as opposed to you know this is a high tech highway. Do we got to start building this stuff better to withstand these events? Do you think?
0: Yeah. First off, uh, my thoughts go out to everyone in British Columbia who's experiencing the, the catastrophic flooding out there. It is Canada's most costly and, and common hazard. We're not alone. Many Canadians have, have been through uh, similar situations. So. Um, I, I know there's a lot of support and, and empathy across the country, uh, and, and I can't. Yeah, this shouldn't be happening. Um, these, the infrastructure you're talking about right now, are critical pieces of infrastructure. Um, it, it really dawned on me, and I think the rest of the country that the, basically the some of the major supply routes between the port of Vancouver and uh, the rest of the country's economy uh, can be easily broken by. You know, a, a one one and one hundred year or one hundred and fifty year flood. So, um, the fact that, for instance, the Trans Canada uh, is in a floodplain. Uh, you know, we know this. It, it's not a it's not a surprise to anyone. And based on its location beside the river, it certainly should have uh, more protection to help it, it from from these impacts. Uh, and the same goes for some of the other highways. I mean, it, the challenge that we face is that most of our infrastructure is built historically we look back at the last 50, 100 years and say uh, what is the worst thing that has happened historically in this area over that period of time uh, And that perspective is no longer valid uh, with the experience we have here from climate change. Um, you know we need to be we need to be making sure incorporating more uncertainty in their design so they're better able to cope with these extremes.
1: Yeah, for sure. I I certainly agree with you. And especially when you consider the patterns that we're seeing here, we've gone through extreme weather events this year. That's just extraordinary and unprecedented. So we hear a lot about the, the battle against climate change, and we need to lower, lower, lower carbon emissions. And a lot of people are on board for that. But do we also have to do a better job? Do you think of just facing up to the reality of the situation that it's not going to change anytime soon? And we've got to start thinking about how to adapt and mitigate, mitigate it, the effects?
0: It's a hard conversation to have, but emissions are baked in and so is climate change to a certain extent. Uh, You know, whether it's uh, our generation, uh, my kids or or the one after that, we're not going to be able to avoid the effects of climate change that you're seeing across British Columbia. I mean, it's been a profound year uh, with the wildfires, the heat dome and now the flooding. But that experience happens every year now uh, in a part of Canada. So. Uh, I think that we need much more attention towards adaptation. There is, there is political support for mitigation across Canada, but what we're missing is that constituency of people that are asking their politicians, uh, be it at the local, provincial or federal level, to be accountable to uh, take some initiative. Ultimately, we're going to need government to help uh, protect us from uh, these risks. And uh, we need much more accountability for their lack of action in helping prepare and defend our communities from climate change.
1: Yeah, I mean, on that point, in the last few days here, we've seen a provincial government that's that's taken some criticism for what some see as a slow response uh, or in some cases kind of deflecting responsibility for emergency planning and evacuations. And we saw the we saw the lead minister here several times over the last few days saying, hey, you know, this is a local responsibility to declare these emergencies and, and then they have to come and ask us for help. I mean, that kind of thing doesn't give people a lot of confidence. Do you have any, you have any thoughts on, you know, you talked about the, the accountability for this. Where does that need to start?
0: You know, I, I saw those comments, and I have to say personally, it drives me nuts when I hear any level of government deflect responsibility to another. That is not an excuse as far as I'm yeah. concerned. These yeah. are perfectly foreseeable risks um, that, that we're encountering, right? So, uh, you know, you absolving your you know, your ministry of responsibility and saying it's someone else's um, responsibility completely ignores uh, some of the dimensions around the way the country works. Local governments have very limited capacity, very limited resources and expertise to be able to manage these risks. Yes. Yet that's where the impacts are most acute. Right. Uh, you know, some of these um, suddenly towns in the interior of British Columbia, they're small and, and they have structures that have existed in the floodplain for a long time. They're not going to be able to afford to build flood defenses and in fact they they, when they even make these appeals to the province for more funding they get rejected so you know personally i'm kind of sick of those politics and in terms of accountability i I really do think it it kind of falls on the the big government uh, the federal government the federal government has to step up they're the ones with the biggest tax base the most amount of resources to be able to come in And um, and really push, incentivize, you know, use their resources to um, require that both provinces and municipalities do a much better job of protecting our communities. Give the resources, uh, you know, make sure that they're available to local level. A lot of local municipal officials have a very good idea of where the risks are in their communities, but they're just handcuffed with their lack of, of resources and capacity to do anything about it.
1: Speaking to Jason Thistlethwaite about uh, preparing for the next extreme weather events, when when you take a look at jurisdictions and other cities across Canada, are are other parts of Canada better prepared for these events than it would appear that we are here in British Columbia? Like, I'm thinking specifically of a place like like Calgary, for example, which I know has, uh, you know, a very detailed flood plan.
0: Right, so... You could Some of the bigger cities, you can argue, are more prepared, and it's largely because they've reacted to crises of their own, right? Yep. Whether it's the flooding, the urban flooding in Toronto in 2013, the river flooding in Calgary in, in uh, 2013, floods in Quebec around the Gatineau and Montreal area um, over the last recent years. Bigger cities do have more capacity to be able to, to manage these risks, but they, they, the story is more or less the same. Um, you know, they're putting in place plans to be, that, based on their expertise, for how to fight climate change. But when we look at those plans, they have some good ideas. We don't see a lot of implementation. We don't see the implementation. Okay. We don't see the money flowing to these pl- strategies, and we don't see um, and we don't see the results that the community needs.
1: Thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it a lot.
0: Appreciate it, and I hope everyone stays safe out there and the recovery uh, uh, goes well.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about those flooded-out farms in the valley there, especially in that evacuation zone around Abbotsford. We talked about this on the show yesterday. I spoke to a, a dairy farmer and also a chicken farmer. Uh, they've been badly flooded out in that region. There are a lot of animals who have literally perished and died, drowned in the rising floodwaters. It's just tragic. Uh, there's nothing worse for a farmer being forced to leave their farm and leave their animals behind. Agriculture Minister Lana Popham talked about this yesterday. Here's what she had to say.
3: We have thousands of animals that have perished. We have uh, many, many more that are in difficult situations and uh, we're seeing um, an animal lo- welfare issue develop.
1: Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Stan Vanderwall, president of the BC Agriculture Council, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Stan, thank you for coming on today.
2: Thank you, and good morning, Mike. Good, mor-
1: good morning to you, Stan. And these are difficult days for the farmers in these flood zones. What, what kind of update can you give our listeners this morning about how many how many farms have been affected here by flooding?
2: Well, I can't possibly begin to tell you the number of farms and the animals that are all affected. All we know is it's big and it's getting bigger every day. Um, what I'd say we do is we focus on really the true priority of the hour. At this point, we know that the waters are re- receding to a degree, which is good news. So, for farmers, the biggest thing is, is is what's next step. They've been moving cattle around. They've got their cattle at at different places. Uh, being milked or cared for, but there's also probably a lot of concern with getting the feed to the farms at this point. So the, the next steps are really how do we get the treatment and the care for the animals. And, and there's so many parts of, of what's being done. I can't tell you the amount of people involved. We've had great discussions with government, with industry, uh, the feed suppliers, the vets, everybody is really on, on board, you could say, talking about solutions.
1: Yeah, what would you say right now is should be the top priority? Like, what do you guys need right now?
2: Top priority is access to the roads. The farmers yeah. need to get in, assess the situation. Um, the feed companies need need to be able to get the feed in. The vets need to be able to get to the farms. So you can't do anything if you can't get to the farm.
1: Right. I've talked to farmers here in the last 48 hours, Stan, who are just going through heartbreaking situations. We've seen some dramatic videos of people trying to rescue rescue their animals. Could, could you just comment briefly on, you know, what what is that like for, for a farmer who is dedicated to their farm operations, dedicated to their animals to be forced to flee and leave their animals behind? I mean, this has just got to be a gut-wrenching time for people.
2: You know, I think it definitely is. But one of the things that always comes out in the farmer is when you're in the crisis mode, um, you're not really worrying about all the specific little issues. You're dealing with the bigger picture. And really what you're trying to do is just say, how do I get the most amount of animals to the safest spot quickest and how do I take care of them the best I can with what I'm dealing with and that's what farmers do every day.
1: Yeah and I know a lot of farmers are helping each other I know that's part of of the deal Uh, do you guys need help from what kind of help do you need from government at this point like clearing the roads obviously number one and what are you hearing from government and, and other officials in terms of that priority?
2: So so government is working with industry and as well with many different associations to actually get road opening has a lot to do with the government themselves and then the authorities. We do have a state of emergency right now. Um, The key thing is making the right connections so that we can actually get the farmer or the feed truck into the yard of the farm. And that may mean they have to cross some, some areas of concern, but um, common sense has to prevail. I think when it comes down to some of the next things, it's about, keeping the feed flowing we know that we have major arteries down so it's critical that we actually get um, grain from the port and those kind of things those things are all being worked on so i think you know for the public don't be concerned the 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 produce is at the farm it's how to get it to market and i think as the as the waters go down we'll see that activity starting to move and i think it's already starting to move
1: speaking to stan vanderwall president of the bc agriculture council about some of the flooding that has affected farmland in the province you know you mentioned uh that produce stan and the difficulties getting it getting it to market like could you talk a little bit about food security food supply here in the days ahead do you think this event uh could disrupt uh food supply chains
2: i think key thing, what I would say and share with the public right now, is buy what you need for the next day. Don't turn around and buy, you know, three weeks' worth of supply. We're not that far off in terms of getting supply back onto the market shelves and that kind of thing. I think the key thing is here is don't overbuy. It makes the problem worse for the people who don't have anything. So I think it's let that happen. Um, and, And I know a lot of people want to help, and everybody appreciates that, but the farmer needs to be able to do what he needs to do and so do the feed companies, the vets and that. I think it's give, give priority to those who need to keep the food flowing, which means allow them to do what they got to do.
1: OK, yeah, this is something that Premier John Horgan spoke about yesterday on this precise point. Let me play a clip of that, Stan, and then get your thoughts on the other side. Here is John Horgan here uh, advising people, do not hoard, just buy what you need.
2: With respect to the hoarding, again, I'm saying people, do the right thing. Uh, Listen to what your mum told you when you were little. Do unto others as you would have, do unto you. Respect the fact that you do not need 48 eggs. A dozen will do and leave the rest for somebody else. We are confident that we can restore our supply chains in a quick and orderly manner, provided we all act as we have been acting over the past two years. Responding to challenges like this in a
1: collaborative, cooperative way to make sure that everyone can come through this in one piece. Okay, Premier John Horgan speaking yesterday. My guest is Stan Vanderwall, president of the BC Agriculture Council. And Stan, you heard the premier say there don't don't buy 48, 48 eggs if uh, only a dozen will do. Um, You know, we've we've heard about egg laying operations and chicken operations impacted, particularly in this in these flooded out regions. Is is there a a a chance there could be like shortages of chickens, eggs, milk, or no? Those
2: are the longer term discussions, Mike. I think we're still at a point of 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 assessing really how big that is, but I think. The premier is absolutely right. There's no need to be buying 48 when you can do fine with 12. Buy what you need. It's like that way we go a lot longer with what we have. I think that's the key message here. Don't panic on it. It's not like the world ended. It's, there's still food supply. If we can get the different um, products to market, you'll see the shelves fill up. But the one thing you will see is you'll probably see there's going to be some gaps here and there in some items. But we can adjust. That's not a big deal.
1: Yeah. Do most farmers have insurance for a disaster like this like we heard the agriculture minister say yesterday that the province is in talks about some sort of bridge funding to maybe help farmers that have been affected do do farmers typically have insurance for stuff like this
2: you know whenever you get a flooding event it's always a question is does your insurance cover that kind of thing so I think those are unknowns for the farmer and I think these are these are going to be the secondary things that start popping up over the next weeks as farmers start dealing with the consequences of the FUD is how do I pay for this all? And that's where I think the government is working with the federal government. There's, there are programs for emergency funding on these kind of things. The biggest part is, is how do you make that quick and ac- that access easy for the farmers so they can get to it? For now, they're going to do what they got to do. The second thing they're going to be talking about is how do we pay for it?
1: Sam, do you got a farm in that, in that region yourself there?
2: I am actually on the safe side, just on the east side of the Better Canal, and and we actually did not have any effect from the flooding, but it's literally yeah. down the road. I flew over the area myself yesterday, having been stuck on the Abbotsford side of things, and, and it's it's painful for sure.
1: Yeah, what was that like flying over it and what you saw there?
2: You know, it, it's just sad to see. You know, I've, I've, I've been a farmer since I was uh, uh, very young, <laughs> And, you know, you see this, and when you see water halfway up the side of a barn, you know that that's significant problems, you know, for now and the future going forward. So these, these farmers, they're, they're innovative. They're going to get in there, and they're going to make the solution the best they can of it very quickly.
1: Stan, thanks for taking the time today in difficult circumstances. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you, and
2: take care. All the best.
1: Let's talk about the pressures on the supply chain in British Columbia, especially for gasoline in Victoria. There are lineups at gas stations there and elsewhere in southern Vancouver Island. Worries about the gas supply in the provincial capital because of a part of a washed out highway uh, that is used for gas deliveries. Meanwhile, on the lower mainland, some concerns about potential gas shortages as well especially if the Trans Mountain Pipeline remains shut down. The Trans Mountain right now still shut down as they conduct assessments on the pipe uh, to see whether it was damaged by floods and landslides. Let's check in with Dan McTague now, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Dan.
0: Hey, good to be here, Mike.
1: Thanks a lot for doing this. Should British Columbians be worried about a gas shortage?
0: I think a shortage is going to happen inevitably, uh, and that's only because there has been a disruption in supply. But uh, I'm not convinced yet that it's the point where it's going to be long-term. Uh, we're really going to have to wait on what Trans Mountain has to say about its pipeline, which delivers, well, here in the Lower Mainland, about a third of, uh, or rather two-thirds of the fuel that you need to uh, uh, to keep your economy viable. So at this point, it's really too early to say Uh, This is day number three where the uh, carrier has indicated that it's not coming back on on stream yet. Uh, More as a precautionary measure. But uh, the longer this goes, uh, the more likely it is from just experience that you will probably wind up in a situation where if it goes on for, say, six or seven days, uh, some suggesting as little as five days, uh, you could start to see more yellow tape around a lot of fuel stations across uh, the lower mainland.
1: I'm taking a look, down at the latest statement from the Trans Mountain Pipeline, and they say the pipeline is still shut down. They are doing a precautionary check of the condition of the pipe in areas where there have been floods and landslides. They have completed an initial air survey flyover of the pipe, but now they want to do on-the-ground inspection of the pipe. There is a plan to restart the pipeline, but it doesn't say when the pipeline yeah. would begin again and that's the crucial point right
0: it very much is and and the fly obviously flying over you can see a lot of things uh, they may be using infrared uh flare cameras etc uh, but you're going to need a, a a more reliable inspection because any small break in that pipeline that can't necessarily be seen through that kind of technology uh, may very well wind up uh, creating a much bigger problem now the good news mike is that uh, from what i understand uh, fortis which had a problem back uh, what uh, two three Thanksgivings ago, uh, has said uh, there's no problem, and so why is that uh, relevant? Well, apart from the fact it's natural gas, we use it for heating our homes. It's also used as feedstock, uh, not just for our refinery here in Burnaby, but also more importantly for the five refineries in Washington State. So that to me is uh, is a good sign because it means that if anything else, if the Trans Mountain pipeline should be down for an extended period of time not able to deliver gasoline and oil. Uh, then you know at least we have a bit of a backup with our friends in the south uh, in the Puget Sound. Anacortis uh, and the five refineries there can can probably take a little bit of our uh, of our need. And more good news yesterday, the Olympic pipeline, which was down for a day or so, that's also a very important pipeline in Washington state that uh, came back online 100%. So I think we're, we might find a way to clear out of the woods. But at this point, it's still too early to say, it's just not as grave as I would have thought it might have been, say, had this happened during the summer.
1: Okay, I'm going to throw the phone lines open here really quickly. If you have a question about BC's fuel supply and where we get our gasoline, uh, questions about it, phone me right now, 604-280-9898. My guest is Dan McTague, one of Canada's top experts on this, Canadians for Affordable Energy. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Yeah, it's interesting, Dan, when you mention Fortis and the natural gas supply in the province, it kind of shows how – Integrated our energy system is like you wouldn't think that any disruption in natural gas supplies would have an impact on gasoline supplies, but it does. I mean, we've seen that before when there was a, a shutdown of a, a natural gas pipeline in British Columbia. It ad- it actually affected gasoline supplies from the United States. Correct? Yeah,
0: big time, yeah. and it drove up prices. About uh, if we don't, many, many of us may not re- recall, but. Prices went up about twelve, thirteen cents a liter. So, I guess at this point, it's not so much the question of whether it'll affect prices, but natural gas is pretty darn important in terms of uh, feedstocks. A lot of a lot of refineries say, "Yeah, we like electrification and we like electricity, but the problem is what happens when you have a thunderstorm or it gets knocked out for you know a variety of reasons." Natural gas runs uh, you know twenty four seven, usually undisrupted, very reliable and uh, very resilient. So, that's uh, in my view. Uh, A very positive piece of information that uh, many may not have considered, but I think, uh, fingers crossed, uh, if TMP can come back online before, say, Sunday, uh, we might have uh, dodged a bullet.
1: Okay, i got the phone lines open, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Let's take a call here from Mac in Richmond. Hi, Mac, go ahead. Go ahead.
0: Hey, uh, Dan, you're my favorite. Every time you uh, talk, the prices go up in Richmond. (laughs) the voice of doom (laughs) yeah well i mean i I i'd like to know why and this has been happening for the past five ten years the price would be 160 at the end of three road you go down to two road it's 158 it's 156 over here it used to be one price across the board why is that uh, listen, when I do my calculations on gasoline, by the way, there's a three cent drop coming tomorrow here in Vancouver, the lower mainland. Right? That's a wholesale price decrease. The big difference there is strictly the retail margin. That's what gas stations allow themselves to be able to turn on their pumps, uh, you know, pay their staff, pay their taxes, honor uh, credit cards. So you see a lot of competition on the last 7.5 cents a litre on gasoline, and that's pretty much it. That's really basically the only difference, unless we're dealing with different zones within the lower mainland. You know, the area, of course, is not served by TransLink, in which case gas prices tend to be about uh, 17, 18 cents a litre cheaper, plus GST.
1: Speaking of Dan McTagg, Canadians for Affordable Energy, star 98.98 on your cell phone. Dan, if that Trans Mountain pipeline is shut down for many days, Hopefully that is not the case, but if that does happen, what could kind of imp- what kind of impact could that have like you were mentioning yellow tape around gas stations you think it could get that it could get that bad
0: Yes, it would definitely uh, two-thirds of your gasoline uh, you know and fuel supplies comes from that pipeline as well as of course uh, by rail and I'm not even discussing rail because I you know I'm here in Ontario and I can see how bad it is the rail lines are, are pretty much uh, uh, not uh, not operable at this time. So, yes, it would mean, you know, a lot of gas stations would run out of fuel. We may very well be looking at something called uh, Mike Allocation. That's gas stations are very familiar with that. It means rather than getting their usual fill up of 50,000 liters to top up or you know 100,000, whatever number of tanks they have, they might be lucky to get 10,000. So it's going to be a bit of uh, touch and go, especially, as I said, I'm looking in on my calendar. You know, I'm saying if this goes into Saturday or Sunday and Trans Mountain has not opened up with that thing, with that pipeline flowing again, Uh, you know uh, best to sort of uh, be prepared for you know shortages now they're not going to be severe they're not going to be dramatic Uh, you will get fuel as I said from the United States but there's going to be a period of time of adjustment and please do not panic Uh, you know this is not a a, you know a doomsday scenario where you have nothing for the foreseeable future take what you need for now and uh, and I think we might be able to get through this.
1: Okay, I'm taking a look at this statement, the, the last statement out from Trans Mountain. They say that there are plans for restarting the pipeline, but it requires continued assessments, including geotechnical evaluations of slope stability and on-the-ground analysis to determine if there is work to repair uh, the area where the pipe goes through. It, it doesn't say how long that will take, though, and, and that's that's the critical point. We don't know how long this is going to take trans mountain says that it's also in contact with its shippers and is working on a plan to mitigate a potential impact of a pipeline shutdown on british Columbians. what could that possibly mean like what could be a what could be a mitigation plan if the pipe is shut down for a while
0: oh well they'll be talking to their uh, uh their customers uh that would be uh Holy frontier used to be the shell plant in Quarters. they'll be talking to bp cherry point they'll be talking to Phillips 66 and Ferndale. All these are refineries that, you know, I'm not from Rio area, but everyone, you know, listening to you will know those are very, very close by, and, and we're talking only, you know, a matter of, you know, 10 to a hundred kilometers away. That's who they'll be talking to. They'll also, and I think from what I'm gathering from their language here, is that they're just doing that so-called abundance of caution thing. They just want to make yeah. darn sure that there's nothing there. Yeah, this is a pipeline that has gone through significant rigorous scrutiny and given some of the political overtones, which I won't get into, they want to make sure that they're squeaky clean and there's no uh, chance for any problems. So if it takes an extra day or two, I think it's well worth it. might be a bit of an inconvenience for us. But for now, Mike, really important we emphasize, prices are not going up. They're going down. So let's hopefully uh, touch wood, cross our fingers, and uh, okay. we might actually get through this.
1: Let's take another call on the open line here. Alex calling from Campbell River. Hi, Alex. Go ahead.
0: Hey,
5: Mike. Um. Just out here fixing one of the gas stations, uh, just phoning on behalf of, you know, a few guys that are on the island here, keeping the gas flowing. Um, You know, stay away from areas with yellow tape. Stop, you know, leaving lineups out onto the street there. Um, Everybody that's panic buying, you could uh, let up a bit on that. You're literally running tanks dry. When that happens, it causes a whole bunch of other issues when it comes to mechanical items that we have to get in there start changing out items be it nozzles stuff like that Uh, people if they could stop fighting each other at these stations that would also be great because it helps cut down the safety paperwork on our end and uh, we all just kind of got to smarten up for a couple days here I guarantee you we'll start getting things from hatch point everything back out and flowing just got to you know take a few deep breaths just realize hey you know if there's a big lineup just go just drive on go about your day you know we don't need to show up with 15 jerry cans.
1: Okay. Hey, Alex, I'm really glad you called in. Like on the island right now, the problem is that Malahat bottleneck right now, right? Like they're doing, it's down to single lane alternating traffic on that, that height, that stretch of highway. The highway's closed at night for repairs. Is that slowing down gasoline deliveries on Vancouver Island right now?
5: It will slow down in the south end as far as, you know, yeah. anywhere up from Mill Bay up to the north, though, we'll still be okay. We'll still get deliveries. There are a few storage items within Greater Victoria itself, you know, and uh, they'll start going into management process here um, where, you know, gas will still get sent out, you know, may not be a full tank, but, you know, half tanks will get delivered to many different sites throughout the lower, lower mainland there. And, um, you know, a lot of these items, a lot of these uh, sh- trucking companies as well will have things worked out with the Department of Highways, you know, as far as getting, you know, through emergency deliveries, stuff like that. Yeah. So it okay. will come through. It'll just be a few hours later.
1: Thank you, Alex, for that call. That's uh, Alex calling from Vancouver Island, where we've seen a lot of lineups around Victoria and elsewhere in the south part of the island. Uh, Dan, for people who are worried, and, uh, yeah, I saw... I've seen lots of lineups in the last 48 hours at gas stations in Victoria, but your thoughts?
0: I think Alex took exactly what needs to be said and uh, put it in, in very plain words. Just don't panic. Uh, this is really not uh, an occasion for doing that. And he pointed out, you know, in Shimanis, uh, so your Hatch Point, uh, Bear Point, and of course Nanaimo, uh, ships aren't affected. So they're going to continue to deliver. Uh, there may be a bit of a logistical problem on the highway there. Uh, I suspect that the government uh, will probably move quickly if it hasn't done so already to limit the amount of non-essential traffic on the Malahat Highway, uh, number one. If that is the case, then I think, uh, you know, again, people okay. just need to be very cautious. If they can do that, we're going to get through this.
1: Dan, thanks for coming on.
0: Great to be here, Mike. All
1: right, welcome back. Let's talk about the Canada-U.S. land border now reopened for essential travel. You must be fully vaccinated to cross the border. But that negative COVID test still required at the border for Canadians returning home from the United States, at least for now. Lots of pressure to drop the PCR test requirement, at least for short trips across the border. So the day trippers heading south to shop and fill up on some cheap gas, those trips have essentially dried up because of that negative PCR test requirement, which can be expensive. But many news outlets across Canada now, including Global News, reporting that that test will soon be dropped by the federal government for trips of 72 hours or less across the border. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was asked about that. Here's what he had to say. We will have an announcement to make in the coming days.
3: Would that include lifting the PCR test requirements?
2: As I said, we'll make an announcement in the coming days.
1: Yeah, okay, so we kind of know it's coming here. Lots of pressure on the Trudeau government now to drop that test requirement at the border, including from Anita Huberman, CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Here she is talking about the reports that that test could be dropped.
4: Many uh, people, many uh, workers, uh, they go back and forth across that border to do business. They have family. Uh, they have relationships. Um, all of this uh, stress related to the cost of the PCR test, which could be as low as $150 a test or as high as $300 a test, uh, was really creating stress and anxiety for workers. Uh, which uh, was eroding bottom-line productivity, is what we were hearing.
1: Okay, Anita Hubberman there, head of the Surrey Board of Trade. All right, lots of reports that that test soon to be dropped. Could come today, maybe tomorrow, we'll get confirmation of the PCR border test set to be dropped for trips under 72 hours. Let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Kelly Lee, leads the Pandemics and Borders Project at SFU. It's an international team of researchers that analyzes cross-border measures during the pandemic. Dr. Lee, thanks for coming on again.
6: Hello, Mike. Yeah, it's good to be with you.
1: Yeah, it's nice to have you back. Um, so the reports are, and this is being widely reported by many news outlets across Canada now, that that PCR test will soon be dropped by the Trudeau government here, at least for trips of 72 hours or, or under that. It, that's what we expect here. Maybe it's today, maybe it's tomorrow. What do you think of that?
6: yeah and and for sure, the focus has been on the cost of these tests um and yeah. you know they are in- incredibly expensive. You have to pay private companies and by the way, workers are actually exempt from those tests, so I don't think that's an argument but yeah for non essential travel, that's a high cost but the The main problem I have with the tests is they're not really pr- um supported scientifically. I mean you get a test uh before you go down seventy two hours before you go down, and then you do your shopping and you travel around and you come back. And you use the same test results. So you've been, you've been potentially exposed to the virus during those 72 hours. So it makes no sense, really. Um, I, I would say, you know, we still do need some testing, but we don't need that test. And, and that's the key thing is what do we replace it with? What do we use to keep Canadians safe and allow them to travel but do it in a safe way?
1: Yeah, I would think that most people looking at some of the opinion polling on this, most people think that maybe now is the time to drop that test requirement, at least for short trips south of the border. But you do get the counter argument still as well, that when you take a look at the vaccination rate in the United States lower than Canada, maybe it's not the time to let her guard down and they should keep that test in place. But you think it's time to drop it?
6: That particular test, yes, but what I would say is that we have to still test people um, coming back, um, and maybe at the border or after the border. And we may not need to test everyone because vaccination does make a big difference in reducing our, our risks, but we're still not 100% protected from infection and we can still transmit even though we're fully vaccinated. So whether you go down for for three days or a week or two weeks, you know, you can still be infected during that time. And what we're saying is, as we don't have the vaccination for under 12 still, we, there's still that, you know, group that we need to protect, as well as those who haven't had their boosters that are vulnerable. So I would say maybe some random testing, we could, we could use rapid tests, we could use all sorts of ways. I mean, the pandemic has moved on. We need to adjust our testing accordingly, but it doesn't mean throwing it out completely.
1: Right. Speaking to Dr. Kelly Lee from SFU, the Pandemics and Borders Project team there. Um, so a better way to do it, let's talk about the rapid test now. So the, the test that's currently required and we expect to be dropped here is the PCR test. That's the expensive one that people can sometimes pay up to hundreds of dollars to get this test. Although I've heard there are ways you can get a free test, too. But, you know, for a lot of people who are looking at a $200 cost for a test, I mean, it's it's a deal breaker. For going south of the border, what about those rapid tests? Do you think that would be a better way to do it?
6: it, it a lot of countries are now using them. They're not uh, as um, um, you know accurate, yeah. but they may be enough to to at least identify who's bringing a a, a virus it, uh, infection into the country. Because we still have variants out there uh, emerging. We still have to you know keep an eye on what's happening in the world. So those rapid tests. Can be used. We could do, you know, random PCR tests at the border as we do at air, uh, airports still, um, and we could do those still and collect enough data. Just, just really keep an eye on things. It's the surveillance that we need to do, and we're, you know, getting rid of that data by getting rid of tests. So that's worrying because we do need early warning systems to show what is happening out in the world, what are we bringing back into the country. And those rapid tests could be very useful. They're about $20 to $40. Mm.
1: Um,
6: and I, it may be that the government covers that cost, because it's in our all our interest to have people tested and and keeping an eye on things.
1: Right. On yesterday's show, we talked about the snowbirds who, at, at this time of year, would be flocking south right now. So a lot of Canadians who like to spend the winter in places like Arizona? They would be normally they'd be down there now or getting set to leave, and we've certainly seen that kind of migration has has stopped during the, the pandemic, especially with some of these border restrictions still in place. I, I spoke to the owner of an RV park yesterday. who Said that they're seeing a lot of Canadians who, instead of going to Arizona or other points south, are coming out to British Columbia to to spend the winter in a milder climate, but what, is your, what are your thoughts on the impact of the border restrictions to, to this state on, on Canadians who would normally go back and forth across the border? In your experience, are a lot of Canadians staying home instead?
6: I think... I think so, I mean, you know, given the weather we've had, I don't blame anyone for wanting to flee, but yeah. um, at at the you know with the new restrictions, you know there, a lot of them have been lifted now, so people can um travel for non essential reasons, and this new policy that's coming won't really affect those who are traveling for more than seventy two hours so this is just for the short trips, but I would say I guess people have. No concerns I mean it's it's a matter of weighing the risk and what you are willing to accept as risk and so older Canadians who are the snowbirds you know they are at higher risk and they yeah. are not fully protected necessarily if they're fully vaccinated so you have to make sure they get their boosters before they go make sure they have the travel insurance coverage. And yeah. just do um, follow the protocols, you know, that we have had here, the masks and the avoiding places where there are unvaccinated people. Um, so there, there are ways they can reduce their risk if they, if they decide that they want to go. But a lot of people are still staying home, yes.
1: Dr. Lee, it's always great to have you on here. Thanks for coming on today.
6: Thanks very much, Mike.